Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. I mean, I was told point blank by someone who works for him that if he if if it makes him look good, the president will be unhappy because the president is very much aware of what's going on all the time. And he's, you know, he doesn't want to be overshadowed by his vice president. And that's often the case, but it's exaggerated now. Today's guest, Kate Anderson Brower, author of the new book, First in Line. Kate's book is a look at vice presidents and their relationships going back to Eisenhower and Nixon. But with so much attention these days to the current vice president, Mike Pence, and the last vice president, Joe Biden, this was a great way of digging in on them, getting more of a sense of who each of them are, who Presidents Trump and President Obama are, and what the future might hold for everyone involved. What if, say, there's a Pence versus Biden presidential election coming? Well, we discussed all of that. Remember to subscribe, rate us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or however you're listening. Email me your thoughts at Isaac at Politico.com and follow me on Twitter at Isaac Dover. You've got so much more great stuff coming. And now, my conversation with Kate Anderson Brower. So the other day, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted a photo of Mount Rushmore and he circled a spot and he said something like, we're waiting for uh, President Trump. I wonder, what is your sense of how President Trump sees himself within the history of presidents, within that club and how he relates to them? Uh, I think that's a really interesting question. I think that he uh, clearly sees himself apart from them and he often tweets very critically of his predecessors, which is unprecedented. Usually you you. You know, and not just Obama, others yeah, too. Yeah, Bush. And I mean, there's some deference to the people who came before you. And I think he sees himself as um, more like Ronald Reagan. I don't think we hear him criticize Reagan very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he sees himself as someone who's broken the mold like Reagan did. And a lot of people who work for him have told me that he thinks of himself uh, like Ronald Reagan. But when I interviewed Nancy Reagan, um, she indicated that that. They are nothing alike. So and when, when did that conversation with Nancy Reagan happen? That happened in my book, The Residence. Right. So, so Trump a long is, time ago. Right. But she already knew who Donald she, Trump yeah, was. Yeah, she knew who he was. I mean, this was actually actually this was during 2016. So, so she's already seeing him yes, as a presidential. Yes. Yeah, yeah. This is so. This is uh, when he went to the um, Reagan Library. Mm-hmm. Did the debate there. But Nancy Reagan was someone who didn't like any Republicans comparing themselves to her husband. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> she, she guarded that very. Uh, yeah. No one was as wonderful as Ronald Reagan. <laughs> but I, I do think Steve Bannon made the comparisons to Andrew Jackson for Donald Trump. He has that picture of Andrew Jackson that he put in the Oval Office. He sometimes will talk about Lincoln. And say, sort of famously last year said, oh, a lot of people don't know, but he was a Republican. <laughs> he doesn't. Trump is not someone who is steeped in the history of this stuff. And 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 in some ways, it's a direct counterpoint to the much more professorial approach that Obama took. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I did a story about this when Obama was president that he used to have regular seminars of presidential historians mm-hmm. come to the White House and talk with him about his place in history and he was obsessed with it mm-hmm. and obsessed with fitting in 
in that. Right? It's a very different approach. And Trump is it, which is the break of the mold, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I interviewed some of those historians when I was a reporter at Bloomberg, like, oh, gosh, H.W. Brands, I think, was mm-hmm. one of them. And Doris Kearns Goodwin was one of them about what those conversations were like with Obama. And I think it was just he was genuinely very interested in history. And like you said, the complete opposite of Donald Trump, who doesn't seem to know that much about his predecessors, except for these flashpoints that he can use in arguments against them. Like, I was surprised at how tough he was on the Bush administration and the Iraq war. I think it's there's always a sense um, for Republicans to be looking back at their predecessors and or, or a Democrat. I mean, you can't imagine Barack Obama being outwardly critical of Bill Clinton, even though privately I did some reporting that showed that he he and Michelle Obama thought that what Clinton did to degrade the presidency mm-hmm. was a terrible thing. Um, but he would never outwardly have criticized Clinton for Monica Lewinsky or any of that. And so it, it's amazing how Donald Trump has changed the presidency and the way that um, presidents communicate with people. I mean, it's um, it's incredible. But I also think Obama seemed in some ways uh, – constrained by trying to think of himself in history all the time. And part of what Trump, uh, part of what powers him is not thinking about that, right? Yeah. People say, criticize him, he always thinks in the moment, but he, uh, I don't think that he spends a lot of time thinking about what his presidential library is going to look like <laughs> and how they exist. But where, whereas like Obama was always in that space a little yeah. bit. And he's he's very zen. I mean, there's been reporting that he's really zen about Donald Trump and that he doesn't. I'm not sure that's entirely where things are, but. (laughs) That he just doesn't like that Michelle Obama cares a lot more about it, but that he actually doesn't allow himself to get so wound up um, and caught up in it. And I can see that he was very cerebral and Mm -hmm. and at peace and not really someone – when I interviewed Joe Biden, he said, you know, I had to get him to listen to his gut all the time. Mm-hmm. Obama had trouble doing that and being emotional. Biden famously said something like uh, – he would tell people, I've never seen somebody who's better at speaking to 10,000 people than to one. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. right. That was, the, <laughs> uh, that was yeah. Biden's assessment of Obama. Yeah. Uh, your book, you say it, it's over 200 people that you talked to mm-hmm. for it. How do you go about figuring out who the right people to talk to are and then getting them to participate in this? You talked to uh, all the living vice presidents, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Did you talk to Pence in the end? No. He did not, Mm-mm. right? Because you had an interview can- and then he canceled it. Yes. So twice, once I was actually, my social security number was, you know, cleared in because to get into the White mm-hmm. House, you have to get that far. Um, and so it was confirmed, but this was when, during Hurricane Harvey and he came back and there were all these headlines. I think there was a Politico headline at the time saying that, you know, he, Pence overshadowed Trump mm-hmm. and was just able to connect with people in a way Trump couldn't. And I think that, you know, Nick Ayers, who's Pence's chief mm-hmm. of staff, is very protective, very smart and understands that, you know, there's no upside for Pence to talk about his position unless it's to get a specific message out, which he will do. But he doesn't agree to talk to reporters often and not to authors. It's really tricky because people feel like they can't control that message. And it's always harder, I think, for a book to get an interview. Although I was surprised how easy it was to talk to Dick Cheney, for instance. Mm-hmm. I thought that would be really hard, but I think he really appreciates history. Mm-hmm. He wanted to talk about Gerald Ford, Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Um, Al Gore was t- hard to get an interview with because those days were hard to for him, the 2000 election. He, he lost. He doesn't do many interviews. No. Yeah. 
We've actually um, tried to get them on the podcast. <laughs> oh, you have? <laughs> Talk about climate change. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that was you part might. of the pitch. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's really tricky. He's really tricky. But so you think that for Pence it was there, – there's no upside because he thinks the president will see this yes. and not like it? Yes. I mean I was told point blank – by someone who works for him, that if he if if it makes him look good, the president will be unhappy because the president is very much aware of what's going on all the time. And he's you know, he doesn't want to be overshadowed by his vice president. And that's often the case, but it's exaggerated now. It's like it does remind me of Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey because Johnson wouldn't let Humphrey, you know, take press on his uh, plane and he just didn't want him to get any attention. If there were leaks, he always criticized Humphrey for it. And it was just this kind of icky relationship between the two of them. One's not close. And I think that Pence is very deferential to the point of of a Hubert Humphrey almost. You, at the end of your chapter on the, the Pence-Trump relationship, you write Pence must be exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm exhausted just thinking about what his life is like. Right? But why do you think that is? Why, why, why must he be exhausted? Because he can't do anything without overthinking and trying to understand what his boss is going to do. And he's so mercurial. Who knows? We don't know what Donald Trump is going to do day to day. And I can't imagine what it's like working for him. Like he... I was told that when he went on this one of his first foreign trips, he when when Pence went on yes, yeah. and he called um, Donald Trump, and it was one a.m. where he was in Europe, and he called Trump to go over the speech mm-hmm. line by line, and that's the kind of thing that it had already been vetted by the West Wing, but he felt the need to also go through. Right, it. that's usually something that a vice president's staff would handle with the president's staff and yeah. there wouldn't even be a conversation with the vice president and the president about it. But it, Pence felt that mm-hmm. he needed to get Trump himself on the phone and talk about this. Yeah. And and there's there was no kind of shame in it when his staff told me that. Uh, you know, it was just like this is how much he cares about getting it right. And he's kind of a translator for Trump too, mm-hmm. you know. He'll right. This was a speech that he gave in Europe. Yeah. That was basically saying to people, "Don't worry too much about all that anti-NATO rhetoric. <laughs> right? It's not going to be that way." Yep. Uh, that was a year and change ago, and uh, that was before we saw what happened in the G seven last month and yep. and how things are are going. Uh, but in that, that was an, seen as a very important speech, an important moment for Pence, an important moment for the presidency. Absolutely. And I think that he does kind of bring down the temperature. And I interviewed a donor, uh, a very wealthy Republican donor, who said without Pence, it would be even more caustic than it is now. And Mm -hmm. that he is that voice who's whispering in the president's ear. He can get the president's attention. Um, This was since I wrote the book, but I talked to someone who worked on um, the National Security Council. And he said he was in the Oval Office and, and Trump was on the phone and he was trying to get his attention. And he went to Pence, and Pence was able to to get his attention. So it's not that they have a terrible relationship. They do spend a lot of time together. It's just that Mike Pence is always deferential, agreeing with him, very rarely disagreeing. And I think a little fear is mixed in there. A little fear on Pence's part mm-hmm. of Trump. Well, Trump makes fun of him. That's one of the things in the book, yeah. right? He makes yeah. fun of him being religious. Yeah. I and mean, someone told me they wouldn't be surprised if his nickname was the deacon, but I could never get that confirmed. <laughs> but you do have in there that Trump sometimes says to people who come into the White House, oh, did Mike pray for you? Yeah. And that- yeah I mean, they're fascinated. I think the Trumps are fascinated by the Pences because there's a 
there was a, a, a meeting between them at Bedminster before Pence was announced. Mm-hmm. And, you know, someone described to me who was there that like they, they sat and were the Pence has said to the Trumps, Melania and Donald Trump, you know, we've been praying for you. Mm-hmm. And the Trumps were like, what are you talking about? I've heard that story myself yeah. and that that then it kind of hit Trump and he took it a little bit more seriously or at least was taking it seriously for the conversations with Pence that would yeah. go forward from there. And that there was a moment uh, ahead of the vice presidential debate the last time that Trump and Pence spoke that Trump said to him, hey, Mike, I'm praying for you. Yeah. And Pence was like, maybe that's sincere, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it does seem like that is not where Trump is on that uh, on the question of praying in the time since, which I think is interesting given how much he talks about uh, religious freedom and that this the importance of Christianity and saying Merry mm-hmm. Christmas and all those things mm-hmm. and and uh, the relationship that he's developed with evangelicals who are such an important part of it. He goes to church not every Sunday at all, um, but uh, Easter, Christmas, he's mm-hmm. gone. Uh, and yet we, from your reporting, I think from other reporting as well, uh, we see that he uh, doesn't take it so much inside of himself. I think from your reporting is interesting in that he's making fun of Mike Pence essentially for being religious. Yeah, I mean, I think to an extent this is all just, you know, Donald Trump is using religion to solidify the base and Mike Pence is his greatest um, tool and, and he might not have won. I mean, there was that weekend with the um, Access Hollywood mm-hmm. tape where Pence, you know, Trump had to call and apologize to Pence. And and I interviewed people in Indiana and friends of Pence and his brother, Greg. And, you know, they said that Pence would never have obviously said anything like what what Trump said on that tape, but that Pence, that Karen Pence was particularly like upset by it. Donald Trump had to apologize to her personally. But they get very kind of, they talk about it in hushed tones, the Mm -hmm. Indiana friends, because I think that they get that it's, it was a very it was the one time where Pence really had control mm-hmm. in that relationship. And if he had wanted to drop out, Donald Trump might not be president. And then And he would have probably been applauded by at least some parts of the Republican Party for doing that at that point. That was a point where we know Reince Priebus, who then, of mm-hmm. course, was the Republican chairman and went on to be the first chief of staff, yeah. told Trump that he thought he should drop out also. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's hard so. to think back to that when like <laughs> no one thought that he would win. Right, of course, since three weeks before the election, yeah. whatever it was. Uh, and there is also a, a, that that transformation of Pence that uh, the way that he subsumed himself to Trump, I think, strikes a lot of people all the time around the travel ban decision. Uh, mm-hmm. th- that's one of the places now where it came back up that there were, uh, Pence said, and there's even a tweet uh, from <laughs> his governor account when, um, mm-hmm. that said – uh, that uh, banning a, a, a Muslim ban would be uh, immoral and unconstitutional. And now he's part of an administration that is proudly celebrating the fact that this travel ban was upheld by the Supreme Court. So how do, what is that with Mike Pence? I know you didn't get to talk to him about it, but but is it just the uh, chain of command? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and it, how does he get through that difference, that stark difference. Every vice president has to give up some things. Mm-hmm. You know, um, with George H.W. Bush, right, he had to uh, tell Ronald Reagan that he would not stop saying voodoo economics mm-hmm. and that he would change his position on abortion, right? Mm-hmm. But So it's not the first time that uh, a vice president has done this. Uh, but this seems like 
a pretty extreme switch. I mean, they call him on message Mike for a reason. You know, he is and he talks about servant leadership, which to him is, you know, the code of his entire job is dependent on this one person, mm-hmm. the president. And he's deeply ambitious and has wanted to be president since he was in high school. So the close, I mean, he he could have lost mm-hmm. his race in Indiana when he was running. And so this is an incredible moment for him where he knows there's a huge chunk of most most Republicans and a huge portion of the country who really like Donald Trump and really like how he's mm-hmm. shaking things up. So for Mike Pence, this is really um, it would be silly for him to do anything mm-hmm. but what he's doing, which is really he is uh, somebody who follows the chain of command. And when I asked a Pence staffer for a good example of how Pence sees his relationship with Trump, they referred me to this uh, commencement address mm-hmm. at Indianapolis where he He clearly outlines, you know, always follow your superiors without question. Do not question. Just do what you're told. Another thing you pick up in the book, this tradition of presidents and vice presidents having lunch. Usually it's Mm -hmm. once a week. I know from my days covering the Obama White House that the Obama-Biden lunches were one-on-one. They were sacred space. The two of them never talked about anything that was discussed there almost ever to mm-hmm. anyone else. And they would hash things out. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the most information mm-hmm. you would get out of it. They really yeah. talked about things, frankly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Trump and Pence have lunch regularly, but what you have in your book is that they don't do it one-on-one, that they actually bring John Kelly, the White House mm-hmm. chief of staff, Trump's chief of staff, and Nick Ayers, uh, mm-hmm. Pence's chief of staff, are there to guide the conversation. It was strange to me to hear that. And again, it wasn't said with any sense of embarrassment or trying to cover it up. But to me, it speaks volumes about their relationship. Because like you said, you know, Biden uh, really treasured that time. Al Gore Mm -hmm. told me that was the most important. It was so important to Al Gore that if there was a missed lunch because Clinton was traveling, he would insist that they meet at nine o'clock at night alone, you know, or just make it happen once a week. And so the fact that that John Kelly and Nick Ayers are sitting taking notes so that Nick Ayers, you know, told me to so that he could answer questions mm-hmm. for Pence if he had any after the lunch and that Trump is generally scattered. And so they, they steer and focus the conversation. I don't know, you know, what other reason there would be for that. I mean, you can just consider if anything comes up with a Russia investigation mm-hmm. or any of the scandals swirling around the White House. It's good to have to other people there who can be witnesses to whatever they're discussing. I wasn't told that. I'm just thinking mm-hmm. it's only logical that there is some reason for this because it is really abnormal. Vox has a new daily podcast you should add to your routine. It's called Today Explained. Every afternoon, Vox's team of public radio expats puts together a 20-minute look at an essential news story. It's always rich in production and fun to listen to. Imagine a running list of all the Mueller indictments set to Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, or an explainer on the history of kneeling in pro sports, or why Saudi Arabian women finally getting the right to drive isn't as progressive as it seems. And then subscribe to Today Explained wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk about the Joe Biden relationship a little bit, uh, but I'll start with that. There's a moment in your book that I personally found interesting because it relates to something that I reported on back in 2015, which is when Joe Biden was thinking about running for president. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and uh, there was a Maureen Dowd column in the New York Times that had this sort of deathbed scene of Joe Biden talking to, or of Bo Biden talking to Joe Biden saying, you've got to run. You're the only one that can stop the Clintons. Uh, that made a huge impact when it ran. And October of 2015, about two weeks before Biden dropped out, I reported at the time that that Biden had been the one to talk to Maureen Dowd about it. And I remember your story. <laughs> yes. And uh, there were some denials issued at the time that that wasn't true. But uh, and I should say that in Joe Biden's book, he writes about that as what he thought was the low point in the campaign for him or in the, the, the proto campaign, talks about my article over the course of a page. And he, he says, the Politico story uh, exceeded even my worst expectations yeah. of what the opposition was going to be like. But here's the thing about it. It's true that he talked to Maureen Dowd. You, the way you put it is that an aide orchestrated this mm -hmm. call. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was told also, exactly what you were told. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that maybe he, you know, in retrospect, shouldn't have done it. And he was kind of getting through his grief. And mm -hmm. I was told he was in kind of a fog and mm -hmm. wanted to test the waters. He had so much pressure. I mean, he was in a very emotional state then. I, th that yeah. is for sure true. But what do you make of the fact that that happened, that the denials happened after that? What does that tell us about Joe Biden? I think Joe Biden really obviously wants to be president and mm -hmm. still very much wants to be president. But the reality of his life, the reality of his family situation now and then, and, um, you know, Bo was there, you know, he was just so in love with his son. And you can't imagine what that would be like. Um, I, I had his speechwriter and others told me that he would get so excited when Bo was on TV that mm -hmm. he would like, call everyone over to look at it and he would brag about him all the time. And it was just this really close father-son relationship. And I do think there is just so much emotion there. But then also there's this big ego, right? Another mm -hmm. aide told me like he, you know, he measures his worth on the inches in the newspaper, mm -hmm. you know, that he never wants to be seen as on his way down. Mm -hmm. A lot of politicians are like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's depressing. Right? And, and look, did you ever meet Bo Biden? Yes. He, there was something where you could see like, okay, maybe that guy is going to be president. Yeah. And he had, uh, he sounded just like Joe Biden. They had almost the same voice, uh, certainly the same intonations, uh, a little bit less gravelly. Uh, he looked like Joe Biden, mm -hmm. but he was more uh, measured. It was it's sort of like yeah. there, in some ways, it, it felt like if Obama, Obama and Biden yeah. had had a son, yeah. he would have been Bo Biden, right? Right. right. <laughs> and Obama at Bo Biden's funeral called him Biden 2.0. There was this sense yeah. that Joe Biden seemed to have uh, at some point in the Obama presidency, like, okay, well, maybe I'm not gonna, going to mm -hmm. be president, but the way mm -hmm. that things will work is that Bo is meant yes. to be that person. And uh, one of his people, one of Joe Biden's people said to me last year, about the 2020 stuff, uh, he's a great believer in fate. And that is certainly mm. true about Joe Biden, right? So he th that he had believed that maybe the fate was that Bo Biden would be the president yeah. now that he died, that if maybe things are directing him to be president. <laughs> I mean, he'll be 78, right? I right. think that's the age. Yep. He'll be, he would turn 78 uh, a week and a half after Election Day 2020. So I interviewed him at his office, you know, which is downtown in D.C. And he we walked out to the elevator bank after we talked and there was this group, there was an office next door and people crowded around mm -hmm. to meet him. And his face just lit. He mm -hmm. was you know, he feeds off of that. And I've never didn't. I don't think that there is 
a, a more extroverted person who's ever been born. Maybe Bill Clinton. I, I you don't think so? Yeah, I mean, there there was the, the famously when Bo Biden died at his wake, it was eleven or twelve hours. Joe Biden stood receiving people, yeah, and uh, stood there for twelve hours. That's a long Amazing. time for anybody to stand there, uh, and he was drawing strength from it, uh, is what people were seeing, and, yeah. and you could see with your eyes, and it uh, that he really was feeding off of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the only thing that would keep him from running would be just, you know, still the grief, still the family situation. Right. Um, You know, what's happened since Bo's death is kind of messy Mm -hmm. personally for him. Um, But, you know, he could if he could pick a vice president who was a lot younger, Mm -hmm. you know, there's been talk of the one term thing. Mm -hmm. I never got that from anybody Mm -hmm. on the record or anything like that. But I'm sure you've heard that. I reported that actually. Oh, okay. So <laughs> there's the thought of like finding a young vice yeah. president, or jumping in early, or jumping in yeah. later, or saying that he'd run for one term. What I've been told about the one term thing is that Joe Biden himself is not into that because, to your point, he doesn't want to be seen as somebody whose whose story is being written off from the moment yeah. that it starts. Right. right so, and right. if you say if you say I'm going to do a one term presidency, then the minute that you win the election, the only question is, okay, who's, who's running in four years? Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. And his ego is very, I mean, he's a lovable guy. What you see is what you get, as you know, with him. I mean, he really is that guy. He was funny. He took my hand and this was at the height of the Me Too movement. And he took me over to a photo on the wall and he said, is it okay if I take your hand? Is this okay? Because he's very touchy feeling, which, you know. With men and women, but. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, with of any age, you know, he's, it's not, it's not really creepy with him at all. It doesn't seem that way, but like, he's just a very kind of old school. Mm -hmm. folksy politician. I always thought his relationship with the Clintons was really interesting because, you know, you hear all different things about how close he was to them and the jealousy, you know, there's got to be some jealousy there Mm -hmm. um, because they're so much alike. It kind of reminds me of, so people, uh, Ron Klain, who was Biden's chief of staff, you know. He was also Gore's chief of staff. Yeah. And he described how, you know, Al Gore looked at Bill Clinton and thought, if I could just be a little bit like folksier and 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 like easygoing, I could be him. I could be Bill Clinton. Well, Joe Biden never looked at Barack Obama and said I could be him because mm-hmm. Barack Obama was like this sensation. Right. There's a, the famous moment, and you have it in your book too, where he says uh, to David Axelrod, uh, "I yeah, you know, I thought that I could be, be yeah. that I was better than him or that I could be president. Like Definitely. this worked out the right yeah. way. Right. <laughs> right. But does he have? Did you find any remorse within him? Any spite? Anything left over from Obama's decision to steer the Democratic nomination very clearly to Hillary Clinton and, and steer him out of the race? I mean, nothing on the record, obviously. But uh, yes, I think he's seemed, you know, he said, of course, he regrets not being president. And he said that publicly. Mm -hmm. And I think that by the time, the timing of it was just so terrible Mm -hmm. because there was just no way. Right. Bo died in in Memorial Day of 2015. And and obviously that was right at the moment where He he would have had to be going with the presidential campaign. And I think, you know, the only thing I found with him, and I have this in the book, is the Navy SEAL raid, the bin Laden raid. Mm-hmm. There was, and among his staff, too, uh, resentment and anger towards Hillary Clinton for taking so much credit for being supportive of the raid. And they said, you know, actually, she really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Biden, you know, said, listen, I I 
fell on my sword and admitted that I wasn't 100% for it. And then he later said and The to day me, before that he before he said he wasn't running in 2015, he had this weird moment. I was there. He was at an event with Walter Mondale talking about vice oh, presidents. Yes. <laughs> I've watched that. <laughs> and he said, actually, I went back to the Oval Office after the meeting yes. and told Obama to do it. Yes. And then it became this weird thing where he had been saying all through the 2012 campaign, you know, I wasn't I didn't think it was the right call to make. But Obama, he, Barack knew what to do. And uh, that was part of his argument for Obama being reelected. But then when it was time for him to maybe think about running for president and he was in that the mm. final throes of it, uh, he changed it. And mm, yeah. Uh, and. I was told that day by the vice president's staff that actually the the, sto- the version of the story where he goes back to the Oval Office and uh-huh. doesn't say in front of everybody else, you should do it, is the accurate one. It's the fuller story uh, because, yes, in the room he was resistant to it because he didn't want to seem like he was putting his thumb on the scale. But mm-hmm. he wanted to tell Obama in yeah. private that so that the version that he'd been telling publicly was only the first half mm. of the story. But mm. it is – I think within that you see the the trickiness of – vice presidents relating to presidents, especially as it comes to their own political futures, right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You don't want to look like you have no record. I mean, you know, it goes back to (laughs) Eisenhower in 1960 being asked about Nixon, you know, and what were his accomplishments? And he said to the reporter, I'll get back to you. And he never did. (laughs) So that's Mike Pence's challenge now is he doesn't have, he has not been able to take credit for tax reform. I mean, anything he's done he doesn't take credit for mm-hmm. And I mean, how is he going to – he clearly wants to run in twenty twenty. You think he clearly does? Yes. Absolutely. I've been told that he does, I mean, by people who work mm-hmm. for him. Um, and everything he's done is a sign of that. One thing I think is interesting too is that his brother Greg told me and this, this – Greg has, who's running for Congress himself. Yes. Right? And, yep. One his seat is, is going to be the Republican um, uh, and I think looks He's exactly in good like shape him. to be a member of Congress. Yes. Yes. Uh, he said, you know, that he and he he won't talk to me now. So I got him right before. He, <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> um, he said, you know, Mike was when when Trump asked him to to be his running mate, Mike's call Pence called his brother and said, you know, he reminds me of our father. Mm-hmm. And Greg Pence was sort of sh- taken aback by that and said, you know, it makes sense. Our father was like tough and told you what you what he thought. And it's been reported that the father was also kind of abusive and would hit the kids with belts and was really strict disciplinarian. Six kids in that family, if an adult walked in the room, they would force them to their feet. Um, so the idea that that Trump reminds Pence of their kind of bullying father to me is really interesting mm-hmm. because he's 13 years older than Pence. Mm-hmm. Pence, you know, you saw the Trump water. is 13 years yes. older than Pence. Yes. And you saw the water bottle mm-hmm. incident. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's many the, examples. That, that's that they're sitting at a briefing. It was, it was a hurricane briefing. I think. Uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Trump takes his bottle of water off the table and then Pence. And like the exact same movement does. And what's not clear is what exactly was driving that, whether they were clearing the space for pictures. But or nobody else, whether, everyone else right, still had their um, bottles on the but table. But Pence did the exact same thing that Trump did. <laughs> it's just a little odd. You know, there seems to be there. I think Biden's um, the advantage Biden and Obama had is, you know, Biden was a lot older, had a lot more experience, four decades almost in Congress, mm-hmm. in the Senate. And I just think that there was deference there. 
that mm-hmm. Obama had towards the end, especially. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're the only uh, president and vice president who grew closer over those eight years. I was surprised how hard it was at the beginning because I never sensed that. Maybe mm-hmm. you did. But I never thought I always kind of bought the idea that it was love at first sight for Biden and Obama. And it wasn't. It was tricky. It was annoying to Biden to have to ask permission for things mm-hmm. like who his Senate replacement would be and, you know, and how like insulting it was for for Joe Biden and Chris Dodd to be carrying their own luggage in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And then Obama's like this huge mm-hmm. hit who just came out of nowhere. And what's that like? Right. So it's more complicated. I think it's. But by the end, it was like actual love. Yeah. And they do have this weirdly deep emotional relationship. And I, weirdly only because it's not something that yeah. two people who work together in those roles no. develop. No, I think it's very sweet. I mean, you know, Biden told me that he stopped talking about Bo so much when he was sick at those lunches mm-hmm. because Obama would get so emotional. Mm-hmm. And that says a lot because that's a real friendship, you mm-hmm. know. And then there's a story about the mortgage that mm-hmm. – and I asked Biden because well, – The story is that, that Biden was – they were worried about paying the medical bills yeah. and he was going to do – take a second mortgage. Uh, and Obama said, I'll give you the money. Don't do yeah. that. Yeah. And it was a CNN interview where he said that. And I asked him when I went back and interviewed him if he did have to take that more. He said he didn't. Mm -hmm. But like the fact that Obama would be willing to do that, Mm -hmm. it was that's very personal Mm -hmm. and and touching. And I think, you know, Obama like joked with Biden about how he how could you have no money (laughs) when he was first looking at him as his VP? Like you have no money. How is this possible? And and Biden likes to brag about that, um, that he is he was the poorest member of the Senate. That's a that is a standard Joe Biden line. You will hear in nine out of 10 Joe Biden appearances. Uh, Probably ten out of ten. <laughs> You'll say they, they like to call me middle class Joe, yeah. um, and uh, they meant it as an insult, but I didn't take it as an insult. <laughs> Those are the Biden lines. <laughs> there are so many, and his speechwriter told me, and you might have heard this, that it's because of his stutter mm-hmm. that, the, that he repeats a lot of the same things. Still, mm-hmm. it's almost like a musician. Yeah, he used to have this terrible stutter as a kid. Yeah, um, they called him uh, Dash. That was his nickname yeah, it's, um, it's, because he would dash, 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 uh, trying to get words out. So. Look, you uh, you said you think Pence wants to run for president in 2024, um, but I want you to imagine a situation where it's possible. I don't think it, we have any reason to believe it's likely at this point, but that if President Trump is not running for re-election and, and Pence decides to run in 2020 and Joe Biden runs in 2020, let's end it on this. What does that race look like? Two vice presidents running against each other, two guys who, uh, as you report in your book, have had some conversations with each other about the job, uh, have... Uh, certainly more of a relationship than uh, Barack Obama and Donald Trump do, who have not spoken since Obama got on the helicopter at the end of the inauguration. And uh, I don't think either of them is upset about that. But <laughs> <laughs> but but Biden and Pence do have a relationship. Mm-hmm. What would it look like for the two of them to run against each other, you think? We saw a little taste of it when Biden said, you know, if I was running against Donald Trump, I'd take him in the back of the woodshed or whatever his thing was. And it was kind of, I think it was not well received. It was sinking down to that Mm -hmm. level. Um, I think any Democrat would be wise to not mention Donald Trump Mm -hmm. very much. Uh, I think Biden has to, you know, when I talked to him, he was very clear. He said, I don't agree with anything pretty much that Mike Pence thinks or Mm -hmm. does. But like Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton, I can work with him. I can Mm -hmm. talk to him. They talk at least once a month. I think that race would be you know, two completely different people. It would be fascinating to watch. I mean, it would be, I would have to wonder, I think that one of them would absolutely need a woman running with them 
or do you think that they would bash each other? Well, you know, Mike Pence did bash Phil Sharp in 1990, mm-hmm. and he can you know wrote this op-ed about when he was running for Congress. Yeah, yeah. And I interviewed Phil Sharp, and, mm-hmm. he, and Sharp said I never got a, an apology personally from Mike Pence. But I think that you know. <sighs> It's a great question because I don't know if Mike Pence would get in the mud. I think he might. I think it might get really nasty. Do you think it would be a Trump-Obama proxy war? Yes, absolutely. And I think Mike Pence has been very smart to keep the conservative evangelicals. I don't think that it's been seen as hypocritical or a betrayal, even though a lot of what Trump stands for, as you said, the travel ban that that Mike Pence personally came out and criticized— um, a lot of his personal issues are, you know, clearly there will be charges of hypocrisy. And there mm-hmm. are. I just think the noise of what's happening now is that people can't focus on Mike Pence. And mm-hmm. I think once they do, if he runs for president, they will see there are a lot of things that are clearly just blatant ambition, unbridled ambition. And that's all politicians. But with Mike Pence, the problem is it's cloaked in this virtuous, you know, um, Christianity. And if you're really Christian, some of what he does is obviously antithetical. It's not anything that the Bible would stand for. And I, it's just very difficult now talking about politics because it's just so different than, than it was when mm-hmm. I wrote my other two books <laughs> when you could be nonpartisan and talk about it. But now if you just state the facts, it makes you seem like you're being right. But you deal with this every day. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, and it's a tricky thing, but yeah, facts don't have an agenda. They're just no, facts. Uh, right. And uh, they can be tricky. They can be uncomfortable. Uh, that yeah. is what we are finding a lot of. But uh, there are a lot of facts in your book. Uh, and uh, it was it was worth reading to get up to speed, not just with these two vice presidential presidential relationships we talked about, but with the span uh, going back uh, through the last, uh, what's the number, seven? Uh, yeah. Yeah, seven. Right. Uh, so there, there's a lot in there. Actually, I start with Nixon and Eisenhower. Right. So I go way back. <laughs> if anyone's interested, Walter Mondale, really amazing guy. Yep. They they he started the modern vice presidency mm-hmm. and every vice president even Mike Pence would agree with that. So I think Mike Pence is a little more willing, clearly much more willing to reach back than Donald Trump is. So that's a good thing. All right, Kate Anderson Brown. Thanks Thank for taking you. the time. Thank you, Isaac. So what do you think? What does that tell you about Donald Trump? What does it tell you about Barack Obama? And of course, what does it tell you about Mike Pence and Joe Biden? Email me at isaacapolitico.com and let me know. Thanks as always to Zach Stanton for producing. Remember to subscribe and spread the word. And of course, follow me on Twitter at Isaac Dobert so you don't miss anything about upcoming episodes or other articles I'm working on. And catch you next time on Off Message.